All right, our reading today comes from Romans 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. I'd appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community. My name is, is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. And before I jump into uh, that text for this morning, let's pray. Uh, Father, we want you to, to speak into our lives, whatever, whatever it is we need to hear. And so I've, I've prepared some words, and, and yet it has to be your spirit that speaks. So I pray that. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most uh, frightening moments of my life came while standing on the driving range of Prestwick Country Club in Avon, Indiana, ahead of the Hendricks County Golf Tournament my junior year in high school. Uh, I couldn't wait for this tournament, mostly because we had won it like 18 years in a row, always beating our rival high school, the Avon Orioles. Uh, and I had won uh, this tournament the year before, so I was ex- really excited this year to, to play. And my excitement quickly gave way to fear because when I started hitting practice shots, I started shanking every one of my shots. Now, if you're not a golfer, what that means, uh, first, let me say, if you're not a golfer, I'm sorry for the existence that you live on this earth, not getting to play golf. But, but for what shanking is, is you, basically you hit it off the hosel of the golf club and it just shoots straight right. And what's hard about that is it's really hard to fix especially when you're about to play in a golf tournament, and even more so when that golf course is very narrow and there's houses lining the fairway, which means if you're shooting shots straight off to the right, you're going to start hitting it in people's houses slash windows, very likely. And so I'm standing, and I just started doing this, and I have no idea why. I call my coach over uh, pretty quickly after I start doing this, and I'm like, Coach, what am I to help me? And literally just he's like, listen, man, I can't help you today. We're going to have to work on this another time. And just walks away from me, uh, which is like, thanks. What's the point of being a coach if you're not going to help me in my moment of need? But I just, and, and the reason why shaking is so difficult is because like, in your mind, you cannot correct what's wrong. Like, you, you can have all the right thoughts, but as you lean over the shot, like, your, your body is just going to do whatever it's about to do, and you can't stop it. Like, your mind cannot fix what your body is doing. Now, not surprisingly, there is a, a direct correlation to the spiritual life from the golf life, which is, is this. Our minds cannot overpower the character and practices that are in our bodies, which is why so often we do the same things that we don't want to do over and over and over again. That just like my mind cannot overpower my body in golf, so your mind cannot overpower the spiritual life, what's in your, your body. So remember, if you were here last week when we started this series, We Can Change, we defined what being a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus is, and this is what we said. This is being a disciple means we are going to become the kind of people who do easily and routinely what Jesus said and did without having to think much about it. Being a disciple of Jesus means you become, over time, the kind of person who does easily and routinely what Jesus said and did without having to think much about it. In other words, being a disciple of Jesus means that, that following him is so deeply worked into our, our bodies, who we are, 
That's the automatic response to the surroundings of our lives. And just like my mind cannot overpower my, whatever it is, is the body of my golf swing, so my mind can't just will myself to living the kind of life that Jesus lived. And so in Romans 12, uh, last week we pushed into, okay, what does it mean that we're to be changed by the renewal of our mind? This week we're going to meditate on what does it mean to offer, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what we're going to meditate on this morning. And there's, there's two ideas that I want to push into. First is that change is a full body experience. If you're going to become, if you're going to change your life, if you're going to change the type of person you are, you have to engage your full body. And second, God's love must be an embodied experience. All right, so first, change must be a full body experience. Um, if you want to change, you have to engage your, your full self. And again, advertisers know this. And last week, I played a Diet Coke commercial to illustrate that point. This week, I want to make my point through, through social media, in particular through Facebook. That Facebook's goal is to get you to spend, as, and frankly, any social media uh, uh, company, their goal is to get you to spend as much time in there and on their product as they can. And so the way that, that Facebook got this for, for us, or the way Facebook approached this in particular, was the like button. The like button is designed to give you a dopamine hit in your brain. A little, a little bodily experience of pleasure. Brief, right? So it, it's a bodily experience that you have proof that people like you. 22 people like you. And then you get a notification, now 23 people like you. And that was the whole way they got one of the, the, their key designs of getting you in to experience their product. And a number of psychologists have pointed this out. In fact, people who have exited the social media world have pointed out that they, like, social media products are designed to mimic how casinos draw gamblers in. And this is how an article in The Guardian described how this works. Whether it's Snapchat streaks, Facebook photo scrolling, or playing Candy Crush, you get drawn in to ludic loops or repeated cycles of uncertainty, anticipation, and feedback, and the rewards are just enough to keep you going. If you disengage, you get peppered with little messages or bonus offers to get your attention and pull you back in, said Scholl, who's a psychologist who the article is quoting. We have to start recognizing the costs of time spent on social media. It's not just a game. It affects us financially, physically, and emotionally. In other words, what she's saying, or what psychologists are quoting in this article is saying, is that the design of social media companies is a full-body experience. It's meant to get at your brain. It's meant to get at your emotions. It's meant to get at your physicality. And they know this, and they know that's the best way to change our habits. It's not just ideas or our minds, but our emotions, our feelings, our entire bodies. So change is a full-body experience. And social media companies know that, and they design their products in that direction. And what I, what I said last week, and I want to build on this week, is that oftentimes church experience, we design our change experience full, only in the minds, not in a full body way. Right? And I'm not saying we're going to start the like button um, here at church, but it, it, what Paul's getting at when he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice, is he need, he's saying, listen, you need to think about your full self. This isn't just about thinking some better thoughts. This is about a full body Experience. And so when Paul says, listen, you need to uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, he means, he means three things, just really briefly. First is that it's your full self that needs to be devoted 
to God. And, and Paul's drawing on the rich tradition of what, what worship looked like in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, which is if you were to worship God, you would bring an offering. And typically there were two types of offerings you would bring. One is you would bring an animal to sacrifice that would lead to the forgiveness of your sins. The animal was kind of a stand-in for your, uh, your guilt. And the other was you could bring uh, a grain or an animal of some kind, and you would offer all of it to God as a way of saying to God, listen, my whole self is devoted to you. And, it's, and the stand-in was a, maybe some grain or an animal. And Paul is talking about that second type of offering here, is that he is saying we are to offer to God something that shows our, our total devotion, our whole self to him. And in this case, it's our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are to, to live in a way that our whole self is offered up to God. That's the first thing Paul is making. The second thing he's saying is that that offering we're to offer to him is to be a living killing. All right, living sacrifice sounds a little bit uh, a little bit religious. Living killing sounds a little bit more direct, which is what he's getting at. And, and by offering our bodies as a living killing before God, what we're doing is we're, we're entering into an ongoing process of burning away all that is in, in us that is not aligned with God. Right? We're not just to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, but as, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So the image is of this burning piece on an altar where everything's getting purified, everything's getting burned away in offer of full devotion to, um, to God. And that's, that's the image given to us. So back to, to the golf course, standing on the driving range. When my coach came up to me and offered no help whatsoever, like basically I can't help you today, he understood that what's true of golf is also true in the spiritual world, which is what's broken in you and me is not going to get fixed with a couple sermons or a good discipleship class or a better group. It's a living killing. You're killing away the things in you that are not aligned with God. And that's, listen, you can't fix that in a couple practice swings on the driving range. You can't fix that with a good psalm reading this morning. That is an ongoing living killing that is a lifelong process where God burns away what is my will and leaves only what is his will. And the third thing, and this is probably most important for our time, the rest of our time this morning, is that God is not interested in theoretical worship but embodied worship, right? We are to become a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which means God is not primarily interested in you thinking good thoughts about him, but in living in a way that is holy, which just means different, means set apart, means distinct. He wants us to live in a way that's holy and pleasing to him. God actually wants us to be the kinds of people who live in the way that Jesus lived, where we do easily and routinely what Jesus said and did. And to give one example of this, so what Paul does is he basically, he gives us verse 1 and 2, which says, listen, your entire being has to change. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then chapters 12 through 14, he lays out a number of commands of what it looks like to embody that worship and live in a different way in Romans 12 through 14. And one example is verse 14. So he just gives, Romans 12 through 14 is a long list of commands. Here's one of them. Romans 12, verse 14. People in the way of Jesus live this way. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We are to become the kinds of people who, like Jesus, automatically, easily, routinely, bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse them. 
Uh, now, we don't become a living sacrifice by thinking about blessing our enemies, about not cursing our enemies. We become a living sacrifice when we actually embody being a blessing and not cursing to our enemies. So how do we do that? Um, and my answer is, the way we do that is we, we embody the practices of our teacher, Jesus, and we resist the practices of this world. Right, so remember last week, um, just a quick re- re- rehash, um, that our brain is divided into two hemispheres. The left brain, which is our rational side, it's where we think, it's where we read, it's where we reason things out, right? So on our left brain, we're thinking, um, okay, I need to love my enemies, and that thought is on our mind. But the problem is our right brain um, works much faster, and it governs our auto-responses. So while our left brain thinks, love my enemies, bless them, and do not curse, uh, curse them, on our right brain, what we do is we read an article on social media and we react. And we begin to see those people or that person in a particular way, even though we know in our left brain, hey, listen, bless my enemies, do not curse them. In our right brain, we read someone we disagree with, and immediately they get put in a category. And that right brain governs our auto-responses, which means most of how we live is out of our right brain, which is not rational, but it's relational. And so, so much of our character formation, so much of whether or not we're going to embody the teachings of Jesus is not is not by thinking harder about the commands of Jesus, but by being so healthy in our relationships, we respond in the way of Jesus. Which means our ch- whether or not you and I change is built so much on our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And so even in this five-week series, the first two weeks are going to be about our relationship with God, and the last three weeks are going to be about our relationship with others, cultivating those relationships in a way that lead to meaningful change, that lead to us being the kinds of people who do easily, automatically, routinely what Jesus said and did. And so when I experience in my body, both by God and by other people, that I am known and loved and embraced by others then that is the path by which I will begin to easily, automatically, routinely do what Jesus said and did. But here's the the problem. For that to be true, for me to be known by God, or to believe I'm known, I'm loved, I'm embraced by God, is not something I can think my way to. I have to experience and enter the practices, the embodied practices of Jesus to enter into that life. And the problem is most of us, Let me rephrase that. All of us are surrounded by worldly practices that lead us away from being known, embraced, loved by God, being secure in that relationship, and towards uh, a different way of living. Right? So social media is a great example. God says, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. That's, that's fundamentally what Jesus does on the cross, right? That a relationship secure with God is going to create a person who automatically loves and embraces their enemies. If, on the other hand, you're more shaped by social media practices, by particular news channels, by other particular ways, you're going to view people as enemies and want to curse them. Even though Jesus did the exact opposite of that, he didn't make categories of enemies. He died for all people. We're going to be informed more by the practices of this world than by the practices of Jesus, because we're entering into relational embodied practices that lead us down a different path than the way of Jesus. So make this practical. One embodied practice Jesus did that we are commanded to do as Christians is fasting. 
that Jesus began his public ministry with a fast. Forty days, not eating, not drinking. And, and when, his, uh, when teaching on the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, through Jesus says to us, his disciples, not, hey, if you ever get around to fasting, uh, he actually says, when you fast, this is how you will fast. He assumes we will fast, so why? And I think the best justification I've ever heard for fasting comes from the ancient Christian Augustine who wrote this. He says, you, you and I must be emptied of that which we are full so that you may be filled with that which you are emptied. So fasting is an embodied practice where I'm emptied of what is necessary to live and what also gives me pleasure. And that physical emptying creates space for a, a spiritual filling, right? For, a, for God to fill me with his, his presence. And that's, that practice of denying myself Physical necessities or physical pleasure is a counterpractice to the world which says, fill yourself up, buy every experience, consume what you can, fill yourself up with the pleasures of this world. Fasting is where I carve out an intentional space to say, I'm going to withdraw from that to open a space for God to fill me spiritually. And so fasting is a way we resist the practices of this world to consume, to live on pleasure, to fill myself with the spirit of of God, to open myself up to a deeper relationship with God, to know Him in a more intimate way, to be embraced by Him, to be loved by Him, to be known by Him. And Jesus had a number of these embodied practices. We don't have time to go through all of them this morning, but that's why Jesus prayed. That's why He fasted. It's why He withdrew into to solitude. It's why He uh, filled Himself with, uh, or, or often celebrated in worship through feasting, um, through celebrating with other of God's people. And these embodied practices become the key way in which we change. Right, Not thinking our way to change, but entering into these embodied practices called spiritual disciplines by which we enter into a deeper relationship with God and with others, getting at the right side of our brain, which leads to, to change. Now, if you've been around here a long time, like that's, that's something we teach a lot about. Uh, but this morning I want to say there's something I've like, deeply missed about this. Um, that for those of you who's like, you know, I've tried the spiritual disciplines as a way to change. I've tried to pray, tried to read my Bible, tried to fast, tried to, to do the list. And it's not, it's not helped and it's not, it's not worked. And there's a reason for that. So point one, change must be an embodied experience. We do need these practices, right? And yet, secondly, uh, God's love must be an embodied experience. There's a reason why if you've engaged those practices, they maybe haven't been very meaningful to you. That if, when I sit down to fast, pray, celebrate, worship in the presence of God, if I'm not secure in my experience of God, that He embraces me, that He loves me, that He wants to spend time with me, then those practices will not help. They will only further disorient me from God. Because now I have this experience, like I'm praying, but God seems disinterested in me. I'm fasting, but God seems distant. This isn't working, right? Now I have the added experience of this distance from God. And there's a reason for that. That our right brain, as I've said, it's, it's our automatic processor. It surveys the landscape around us and determines whether this is a good and safe, loving environment for me to enter into. And the right brain reaction to our environment, which governs how we approach God, if, if that is determined by how others treat us, that means for good or for ill, how others have treated us, how we think God has treated us, determines how we experience God when we enter into that space of spiritual disciplines. 
Right? And so I pointed out last week that that right brain response is really governed by four questions. One, am I worthy of being loved? Two, am I able to need am I am I able to do what I need to do to get the love I need? Three, are other people reliable and trustworthy? And four, are other people accessible and willing to respond to me when I need them? If we answer any of those questions, no. And again, regardless of what you think right now in your left brain, are those things true? If we have experienced other people or experienced God through other people that leads us to answer no to any of those questions, the spiritual disciplines could just further frustrate our faith instead of enhance it. So let me illustrate that with a story. Uh, before I came to Kansas City, I was, uh, I was in seminary in Chicago, and I had a part-time job as a worship leader while I was, uh, while I was in Chicago. And one of the first people that, that just wanted to support me and help me, um, uh, her name was Anne, uh, just came alongside me. Um, but what I found very quickly was I was never going to meet Anne's expectations of what I should do in my job. I never picked the right songs. If I did pick the right songs, we didn't do it in the right way. And I, I, remember, I remember at one point realizing, oh, this is not a good relationship. Uh, because ahead of, of Easter, she wanted me, now I was 10 hours a week on this job. She wanted me to, uh, to, to write choir parts for about six worship songs, different harmonies, actually write the musical bars to, I'm 10 hours a week. And she wanted me to lead a choir and write choir parts for like six worship songs. And I'm like, first of all, I don't know how to do that. Um, at all. I don't even know how. I mean, I was, I'm decently musical, but it's like, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, I, just, I just can't. And, and what, what I found was this was actually beginning to affect my, the way God was viewing the, way, the job I was doing. Because the primary voice I was hearing at my church was, you're not doing enough. Uh, you're not doing it well enough. Uh, you should be more engaged. You're not, you know, our last, this worship leader did, did this, which meant I had a relationship with the church, which was always always critical, always harsh, unfair. And over time, that, I began to, to, to experience God. That was God's disposition towards me and my job. Until finally, someone who was much more in the way of Jesus than, than that person came to me one day with, a, you know, and, and again, depending on your, your Holy Spirit conference level, came, with me, came to me with a word from God and just said, God has a word for you, and it's kindness. He's not looking at you with your job in a, in a harsh or condemned way. He, actually, he wants you to experience his kindness. And that was just from Ephesians 2, which uh, is a, a, a verse on the salvation of God. And God sent Jesus so that you and I could experience God's kindness for eternity. Like the heart of the gospel is that God sent Jesus so you could know the kindness of God for eternity. But here's the thing. If you have a primary relationship in your life that is not kind to you ever... That is going to get important, imported into your vision of God, whether you, whether you believe it or not. Like whether you, even if, if you say, that, okay, but Tim, you should have separated that person from God. Yeah, agreed, but that's not how our right brain, brain works. And if you have a, a, you know, a significant relationship in your life that is answering one of those four questions to you no again and again and again, it is going to affect your vision of God and the spiritual disciplines may not help you with that. And similar things happen to us, spiritually relation. Listen, I'm, I'm a pastor, and a lot of the work I do with people who come new to the church is working through past spiritual abuse. Church leaders or church authorities that um, tr- treated you with disrespect or dismissed you in a condescending way. And if, if that's your experience of a church leader, that will become your experience of, of God. It just will. 
Or if you have a key relationship in your life, a parent, a friend, or sibling who's perpetually harsh, who's condemning and angry, that means when you seek God in worship, you're going to have thoughts of no way he wants to hear me right now. He's too angry, frustrated, too busy for me. Our key relationships in life, our spiritual leaders, our family, our close friends, form our right brain, which then forms our vision of God, which will affect our vision of God when we try to enter into intimate spaces with him. Right? So if, if you have a, a significant in your voice or a significant voice in your life that is condemning, when you sit down to pray with God, that is how you see God. There's just no way around that. You see God as angry or condemning or as excessively harsh. And so let me I want to give two lines of thought in clothing, closing as we begin to what does it look like to come out of that? Right? And because all of us have relationships that do that to us. So how do we get into a place where we can approach God in intimacy and trust him? And two two thoughts. One, we need a theology of God, which Paul gives us here in Romans 12. And two, we need a practice, which Paul doesn't give here, but he gives elsewhere throughout his writings. So the first is the theology. And Paul begins, so I mentioned this last week, uh, Romans 1 through 11 is all the gospel, the grace of God, deep theology. Then Romans 12 through 14 is how you live as a Christian. But Paul does not begin Romans 12 through 14 by saying, okay, guys, you're all a giant emotional mess, so get it together. Um, that's not what he says, even though that would be true. Uh, Romans 12, he starts by saying this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. So as we enter into the life change experience, we start with the mercies of God. And this word mercy is not the typical word of, for mercy in the New Testament. It's a different word. And the, this word for mercy actually means, uh, it means sympathy for weakness. It's sort of, it's almost, there are some, some uses of it, it's almost condescending. It, I, that's not what's happening here. But we start in Romans 12 with this like, hey, now you're going to become the kind of person who automatically loves your enemies, doesn't curse them. That's who you're going to become. It doesn't start with, uh, okay, you know, buck up, buttercup, or you better try really hard. It starts with God's, an appeal to God's mercy of him looking at us in sympathy and kindness, knowing this is not going to go well. <laughs> this is going to be hard. There's a lot to burn away in, in us in becoming living sacrifices. And I feel like that's even just a, just a pause. For, is that how you see God? That how many of us, when we think of our weaknesses, our failures, that God views us with sympathy? That he views us like, Listen, this is, this is going to be hard. I know it. You're weak. I understand. Or how many of us, when we envision God, we envision him shaking his head at us, disappointed, angry, withdrawn. And the reason, that, that, the reason that's true is not because that's who God is, but that's because that's who people have been towards us. At the beginning of this, this section on change, Paul starts by saying, I appeal to you all with the sympathy of God. As we enter into this life of change, this kindness, this understanding, that is God's posture towards you and I. Now, we have that in our left brain. We know it's true, right? But we don't know it in our right brain. Yeah, that's going to take some time. And so I want to, the second thing I want to do is give us a right brain practice for how you can actually begin to enter into the mercy of, of God. That Paul knows if you and I are going to change, we need an, an embodied experience of his love, a living sacrifice of his love. And I gave you one practice last week that begins to do that, which is the question at the beginning of your day, God, how do you want to love me today? And then revisit that question at the end of the day. I, I hope you did it. And if you didn't, here's another practice that I think is, is probably even more powerful. 
um, than that is, 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 and even right now to enter into this space, to think of a moment in your life that fills you with gratitude. And there, uh, there's two questions that you need to, to pursue, and, and God needs to be involved in that, that, that memory, right? So a key moment in your life to which you are grateful to God. And while you're in that memory, ask yourself two questions. One, what did you feel in your body in that experience, in that moment? Was it peace? Was it, was it light, lightness? And question two, what, God, what might God be communicating to you through that memory and what you felt? That a key practice is, a key spiritual discipline is the practice of thanksgiving or gratitude. And I think too often it's like, okay, what's my list? Yeah, I'm thankful, uh, you know, I had Joe's for dinner last night. I, had, uh, I got a nap in yesterday. It's like we think of, of things, but gratitude is actually thinking of experiences, events, where God was uniquely present to you. And so I would encourage you this week, take five minutes, think of a memory of which you're grateful to God and go through those two questions. What did you feel in your body and what might God be communicating to you through that memory and how you felt? And in this week, go back into that, that space and spend five minutes there. And I would say build a bank of those memories, nine to 10, 10 to 15. And once you have a bank, actually uh, spend 30 days with that as a three times a day practice, five minutes a day, going into those memories and thanking God. Now, if you're sitting there, you're thinking, this sounds kind of new agey, weird, like what, where's, and this is a psalm practice, right? So if you're like, this sounds feminine, Sounds weird. This sounds new agey. Like, do I have to have, uh, you know, incense going in the background when I do this? Listen, this is Psalm 9.1 starts, the Psalm 9 starts like this. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Now, this is not a feminine experience because what he's going to recount is times past when he was in battle and about to die. And God gave his army special uh, strength, power, whatever, to defeat his enemies. Okay, so this is what a warrior did in the Psalms and reflecting on his prayer. And so this, first, this is a psalm practice. Second, it's not feminine. And even though it seems experiential, this is, this is what actually taking the salvation of God into our daily lived experience is all about, right? In other words, as Christians, we don't just believe in our left brain that Jesus Christ died for me uh, sometime 2,000 years ago, and sometime in, the, in some future moment, he's going to come back uh, and give me his love at that point. That, listen, that, we have not experienced those things in the flesh. But if, if those two things are true, Right? If God's love towards us is so, so thorough and powerful that he actually gave his son up as a sacrifice towards us, and then he's coming back to return for us, then we should expect that we have experienced that love in embodied ways through our however many years we live on this earth. That is, listen, that is not some new agey hocus pocus. So like, we should expect our salvation of God to be an, ex, an embodied thing, a real, tangible, present experience. We're not just waiting for salvation in some distant future, we're not, and we're not reflecting on it 2,000 years in the past. Our salvation should be experienced now. And my bet is you all have memories, right? Not just of a good meal, but of God's gratitude and love and kindness towards you. And we forget those places, which is why Psalm 9 begins by saying, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. And if you read through the psalm, that is not some past thing. It is how he has experienced the salvation of God in his own life. And he names those moments. He goes back to those moments. So how do we change? 
We have to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, embracing the practices of Jesus that grow out of his own deep experience of the Father's love. But here's the thing. If we're not sure of the Father's love towards us, those practices can quickly be a way and a means by which we try to earn that love. If I pray enough, if I read enough of my Bible, if I memorize enough, if I fast enough, then God will, and that, no, that's, all that will do is further break down your love and experience of God, which is why the practice of gratitude and thanksgiving is so important. To enter into those moments in our life when God's salvation, His love, became real to us. And so there's two next steps out of this morning. One, if you've never experienced that love, then let's talk, because that's the, that's the way into the Christian experience, is to, to experience God's love, to repent of a life without it, and to move in a life with it to become a Christian. I'd love to talk to you about that. And secondly, if you are a Christian, you need to build those bank of memories. You need to recount the salvation, the wonderful deeds of God towards you and not forget them. Because in doing that, in entering into those moments, and to re-entering into those moments, we see I don't have to earn God's love. I don't have to earn his attention. I already have it. I am already loved. I'm already seen by mercy with God, and now I can just experience it. Let's pray. Father, we and I don't just want to speak of your love towards us, of the mercy that you bring. God, we, don't, we just don't want to appeal to one another by your mercies. We want to experience it. That as I pray right now, your posture towards your church is one of compassion and kindness and forgiveness, of sympathy. You see our brokenness. You see the ways in which we are caught in patterns of sin. You see all of it. And yet you don't look on that with, um, with a desire to withdraw from us, to condemn us, but instead to enter more fully in, first by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and now by the presence of your Spirit, which goes to work in our hearts and lives to change us, first by more securing our own experience of you first. So God, as we, as we reflect, as we sing, would you, would you lead us into that experience of your mercy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.